0: Good morning again and welcome. My name is Craig Thompson, I'm senior pastor. I don't think I introduced myself earlier. I do apologize for that if you're a guest with us. We are really thankful that you're with us. Um, I want to speak for just a moment. We're going to be in the book of Amos. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there, Um, we'd encourage you to do that. I do need to speak for just a moment to our folks. Um, This morning, we are going to be taking nominations for our refocus team. Now, we're gonna, we, the, the, the form is in your bulletin today. There will be a form in your bulletin next week as well. These won't be, or you can turn it in today if you want to. We're not really collecting them until next Sunday. Uh, we will also, for those of you who are at home and not just not able to be with us right now, there will be an electronic form. It will be sent out tomorrow. So there are opportunities for that. If you have lots of questions related to what our refocus team and this refocus initiative is going to look like, I would encourage you to go to our website at malvernhill.org/refocus. I believe is the exact address, but regardless of what the address is, if you'll go to our website, it's right there at the top, um, one of our uh, main buttons that you can click on the top of the uh, of the website. So. Uh, Please take time to do that if you have questions. I do want to just give you a quick uh, reminder, though. We we presented this refocused plan um, several months back. I presented it on a Sunday morning. We even took a vote as a church body, uh, just as a a, a, really turned out to be just a a vote of affirmation that the the intention, the efforts, and the desires that we had were good, right, Um, and and, and, in, in, in agreement with our church body. Uh, the four things that our team will be focusing on as it is elected um, are, are these things. To meet the needs of our church, uh, and that's going to relate to a lot of uh, physical needs. We're just out of space in nearly every conceivable area. Uh, to reach our community, do a better job reaching out into our community to strengthen other churches. So what can we do as a church body to help uh, churches around us to learn from what we've learned from, maybe avoid some of our mistakes, and then finally to do a better job of reaching the world, to, to really give a, a greater emphasis to uh, sending people to the nations and, and ourselves going to the nations and, and and increasing our missional impact around the world. All of that requires more than just the input of your pastor. So um, as a church body, we've asked we are asking you all to nominate members to serve on this committee. Team, group, whatever you want to call them. Maybe we should come up with a really good name, like Focus Initiative or something like that. That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) This is going to be a tough crowd to preach to this morning. Um, I'm going to just read to you uh, some of the the, the things that are listed in here. As you're praying, hopefully you've already been praying, and as you pray over the next week about uh, who you would nominate to serve, uh, these are the expectations uh, that you should keep in mind um, The people that should serve should be a member Who uh, is in good standing with our church That means attends regularly And has been a member for at least a year So listen, if you recommend somebody that joined six months ago We love them, they might be wonderful humans But this is, this is our goal, for at least a year They have to be active in a life group They should be able to work well with a the team uh, They should be able to, regular, to attend regular group meetings on week nights. Uh, They should have a thorough understanding of our church and our community. Should be supportive of the overall refocused vision. They must be missional and outward focused. Must have a character that represents the core values of our church. That is to love God, love others, and change the world. And, of course, those things are wrapped up in, in, in what we see to be the core of God's Word, which is that great commandment, the, the second commandment, the great commission. That are all wrapped up there in those statements. Then, additionally, um, you may just consider those who have particular knowledge or experience that would help develop a long-range plan. Um, we will, the team will be um, announced on Sunday, October the 3rd. If you will notice, I put the wrong date on this. We read through it three times, and everybody assumed that I had checked the calendar and I had the right date, and it's wrong. So I do apologize for that. Don't blame anyone but me. Um, if you have questions, contact one of your deacons. Call me. I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Uh, but uh, we, this team, we made up of eight individuals from within our church body, four men and four women. And so it's your responsibility to, to nominate those folks and get them out there so that we can uh, identify that team and get them moving quickly, okay? All right, again, if you have questions, I'd be happy to answer them, and I, I just pulled this up uh, before I came up on my website, So, or excuse me, on my tablet, my iPad this morning, so all the information that you might have is right there with slideshows on our website, so please make use of that and ask lots and lots of questions. Having done that, one other announcement, we do have a Next Steps class this afternoon that will meet at 4 o'clock. If you are a visitor for the first time or the 10th time or the 100th time and you're interested in knowing what it would be like to be a member of Malvern Hill, I'll be meeting with you this afternoon at 4 o'clock. I will meet you in the sanctuary and from here we will find a room that fits us. I always meet here because this is the easiest place to find because I'm just never sure if I'm going to have 6 people show up or 16 and so we want to make sure that we have plenty of room but I'll meet you in here and then we will move to a a room that fits us but uh, I would just encourage you if you have questions, if you're not 100% sure this is where you want to be but you're just thinking. And maybe there might be a chance. Come join us this afternoon. No commitment on the back end of it. Get a chance to know me, and I get a chance to know you at 4 o'clock this afternoon. All right, hopefully by now you've made it to the book of Amos. It's one of the minor prophets. Not minor because it's not important. Minor because it's just one of our smaller prophets, um, or smaller co- collections of prophecy from one of our prophets. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, turn to Amos chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. The Bible says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel?" You shall take up Siketh, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would teach us from this challenging word this morning. Rebuke us in our sin. Turn us, O God, we pray, toward your hand of deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen. try to remind you most every Sunday we've been reading through the Bible as a church and if you've been with us um, all year and you start in January then you will make your way into these minor prophets this coming week so we've, we've been, of course, uh, Genesis, Revelation, we've dealt with many, many of the major prophets this past Sunday. We were in the book of Daniel. Today, of course, we're in the book of Amos. So uh, if you've been reading along with us, that's what we're doing. If you're new to us, that's, that's why you'll find over the next few weeks we're not camping out in one place or the other. We're, we're running pretty quickly through the Bible trying to get this, again, this 20,000, 30,000 foot view of what God's Word teaches us. Um, which is a little different than what we normally do, which is to dig in deep in one smaller place, whether it be a word or, one, or excuse me, a book or one passage of scripture. So that's been our focus for this year. And so we find ourselves in the book of Amos. Now Amos is interesting. Here's a few things that we know about Amos. First, Amos is the first of our writing prophets. Uh, he's the first one to write things down. Amos is probably, as best we understand, as a contemporary of Isaiah. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah. But he didn't speak to his own people. He did most of his prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. So you can imagine, this is like somebody coming up from Georgia and telling us how to live. We really don't want to hear it. So Amos was not all that popular. Amos was not a priest or a professional prophet. This is why this is a working man's sermon. It's a blue-collar kind of sermon today because this is a blue Collar man, and, and chapter 7, verse 14, Amos announces, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. In the very beginning of Amos, in chapter 1, verse 1, he, said, he identifies himself as a shepherd. It's been suggested that he could have been uh, maybe a, a sort of a jack-of-all-trades, maybe just a, a generic sort of general farm laborer. Now, we also know that Amos is, is a pretty educated guy, so the, the potential exists that maybe he was the owner of these things and participated, but um, traditionally the view has been that, that because he identifies himself among these laborers, that that's primarily where Amos finds himself. We know a few, a few things for sure about him other than that, though. So those are things we have to speculate a little bit about, but here's one thing we know. First of all, his blue-collar background didn't disqualify him from service in the Lord's kingdom. Amos's background did not disqualify him from serving the Lord. Second, we know that in addition to his call from the Lord, Amos had done something to prepare for his life of service. His writing is filled with polished skills and debate and a variety of literary forms. Amos was a man who worked in the fields and studied God's Word and studied for how it was that he could engage In service. Amos isn't the only person to have found their calling while working in a different field of sorts. Albert Einstein famously worked as a patent clerk, the patent clerk, while he was writing his most famous theories. He was working in what he believed to be sort of a menial job, a menial position. Why? Because he was deemed to be unworthy of serving on university faculty. D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman before he became one of the United States most famous, most powerful, and greatest evangelists. Today's sermon is a working man's sermon. A reminder that God can use you right where you are, no matter where you came from, no matter whose son you are, no matter what you do with your life. God has a purpose. Regardless of your current state of employment, your educational attainment, or your status in life, God can use you. And so this morning I urge, I encourage you as you look at this working man's message to be open to what it is that God is saying to you and how God might use you. He may just use you to deliver a message of warning. With that background in mind, we turn now really to the the focus of our sermon this morning, which is to wrestle with this question. Do you really want what you think you want? You ever... You ever got something that you wanted only to figure out that once you got it, it just wasn't everything that you hoped for? Shane Beamer kind of did that yesterday. Did y'all watch the game? He calls a timeout with 35 seconds to go in the half so they can try to block a punt or return a punt or have have an extra possession so that maybe they can put some points on the board. And what happened? We got that time on the clock. We got the ball back just so we could give up a safety and a field goal before halftime. Sometimes you don't want what you think you want. Clemson fans are smirking, but y'all didn't look like y'all wanted much of Georgia Tech either. <laughs> that felt kind of good. Sorry, <laughs> all right. Georgia's still got to play Florida. All right. <laughs> Do you want what you think you want? Do you really want it? I wrote my question a couple of times this week. I, first I had something that sounded really polished and then I changed it to something else. Then I said, do you want what you think you want? And then I added that, do you really want what you think you want? Man, there have been things in my life that I just really wanted it. There's some things I kind of want, you know. But there are other things that you just really want. Do you really want it? As we think about that and we look at Amos's word of warning the first thing I want to urge you to do is to be very careful what you ask for be very careful what you ask for because you might just get it Shane Beamer got what he asked for yesterday but it didn't turn out at all the way that he wanted Israel and Judah were always anxious for God's judgment to come Israel and Judah were eager because they they were living regularly divided. They were under pressure. This is before the exile. This is before the destruction of Judah and the temple. Uh, And so uh, they're they're living with this sort of angst, this anxiety, this eagerness. They're kind of walking around. They're going, just wait until my God shows up and he's going to tell you something. When I was in college, I walked into a basketball game. And uh, uh, as, as I walked in... Somebody yells from like the other end of the gym, and it was a a friend of mine, and he screams, I told you my brother was coming, there he is! like, What in the world is going on? This guy had been jawing with with the opposing basketball team for the first quarter or something. I hadn't been there, I don't know. He'd been yelling, and they'd been jawing back and forth, and he says to to one of them, y'all better watch it, because I got backup coming, and I walk in the gym, and apparently he's the one I thought. Well, hey, I didn't want whatever he had. You know, I, I had zero interest in that conversation. But, uh, but we, we sometimes are so anxious. And, and, and that's where Israel and Judah were. They were always like, just wait until God shows up and then you're going to know something. You keep picking on me, my big brother's coming. And when he gets here, he's going to put you in your place. Amos is the, the party pooper of all party poopers. He just comes and he pours water all over this parade because they said, you want the day of the Lord. Amos says, (laughs) careful. You might not want what you think you want. Be careful what you ask for. What are you asking for? What what Amos said is the day of the Lord is not going to be what you think it is. You think that God's going to show up and pat you on the back. Amos says, the problem is you're not living for him. You don't love him, you don't look like him. Amos warns them, the day of the Lord, when it gets here, it's going to be kind of rough. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have it? And of course, they're going, why wouldn't we have it? We're ready. We want God to show up and set everything right. He says, it's darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went to the house and leaned against the wall and a serpent bit him. Amos says, I warn you that you believe that running into the day of the Lord is going to deliver you from danger. But because you are not honoring Him with your lives, running to Him is as dangerous as meeting a lion in the street. You believe that you're going to find peace and security, but you're going to encounter judgment from the Lord. He said, the day of the Lord is darkness and not light and gloom and no brightness. Why? He says, because I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of the fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Mercy, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. God says, I have no desire for all of these things. Buster reminded us in a reading and prayer just a few moments ago that what is it the Lord desires of us but a, a broken and a contrite heart? He's not interested in our empty festivals in and in our empty religious practices. Be careful what you ask for because you just might, you just might get it what are you asking for Now I'm not talking about patience here I talked about this in my my equipping study last week listen I do want to remind you our equipping study started this past Sunday uh, if you weren't here last Sunday show up tonight anyway we'd love to have you get a lot out of it but one of the things I talked about in my equipping study was was how so often well let me back up you ever heard that old saying that don't pray for patience because God just might give it to you all right in my equipping study we talked about in that is that the reason that we say that, and I'm not trying to pick on you if you've ever said that, I'm sorry. But the reason we say it is because we don't actually trust the Lord. Right? I, I, I don't trust Him. Right? So don't pray for it because God might give you what, you what you ask for. Do you trust Him to give you what you need or trust Him to just do what you think you should do? Be careful with that. But at the same time, be careful what you pray for because you just might get it. They're saying, come, Lord, quickly. And, and Amos says, you better wait. You need to be thankful that he hasn't shown up yet because when he gets here, you've actually set yourself up not as a friend of the Lord but as an enemy. And when you encounter him in that place and in that way and in that time, you're going to be in a mess. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Do you desire to know the Lord, to see the Lord, to encounter the Lord? Be sure that you're ready when that opportunity presents itself. Do you really want what you think you want? Be careful what you ask for. Second, this morning, be careful what you do. As best as I can determine, the most famous use of this passage from the book of Amos was from Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech. There in that passage or in that speech, I've always, or let me back up, I've kind of always read this passage of Scripture in the same way that I believe that King intended for it to be understood in his speech which is to say that we must live our lives in pursuit of justice that's what he says right here in verse 24 but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream king's dream was for justice to come to america by by creating equality between blacks and whites but I, i actually believe that Amos' intention right here was not to urge us toward justice, but to warn us about the ever-flowing stream of justice and righteousness from God that was going to pour out upon God's enemies. The warning from Amos here in this passage is not, you better do this thing called justice. He says God will do justice regardless of who you are or what you do. The flood of God's justice will come forth. He's talking here continually about the day of the Lord. Be careful what you do, yes, but understand that God will be just. Now, Amos' reference was to God's justice, but what if our responsibility to pursue justice, to pursue righteousness, It turns out that the crux of the entire book of Amos is tied up with this idea of us doing godly things, not just saying godly things, of actually living lives that look like the Lord. The idea that people might claim to be children of God, but not live it, exists in the book of Amos. Now, lest you believe that it stopped with Amos. Let me give you some statistics I came across just this morning. 26.7% of people who self-identify as an evangelical. Now this is this is by Pew Research polling. So these people self-identify who self-identify as an evangelical never or seldom attend church. More than a fourth of people who claim to be evangelicals Now, the word evangelical means it carries with the idea supposedly of born again, a follower of Jesus. Let me just step out on a limb right here and say that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you seldom or never attend church, unless you are disabled and can't get out, you are most likely lying or you've been deceived. It gets worse. Thirteen and a half percent who claim to be evangelical Christians say they only attend church yearly, once a year. You add those things together and you come up with a number of more than 40% of the American population who claim to be evangelicals attend church once a year or less. This is why I have so many concerns politically, because the idea that evangelical has become a voting block as opposed to an identification of a person who belongs to Jesus is terrifying. And when we see these numbers... It begins to bear out, right? Why in the world would you claim to be a follower of Christ if you want nothing to do with the people of God and the things of God? But come on, let's keep going. Now, we wonder why there's this huge morality issue, this huge ethics issue among evangelicals in polling, and it, it, it does. it's beginning to grow even more. So, for instance, when we see numbers like uh, the, 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 the percentage of evangelicals who, for instance, are divorced is, is, is the same as the percentage of non-believers, Okay? That's true. Here's what's not true. The percentage of people who regularly attend church do not experience the same degree of divorce, for instance, as those who do not attend church. The reality is that those who claim to be followers of Jesus but don't do anything that looks like following Jesus don't actually act like Christ in any aspect of their life. If you're watching at home, If you come across this sermon online, just randomly, let me just warn you. If you're here today and it's the first time you've darkened the doors of a church in a year, I'm so glad you're here, but let me warn you. God is not interested in your feasts and your religious practices. He's not interested in what you claim. He's interested in who you are. And who you are will be reflected in what you do. This is why Jesus talks so much about fruit. This is why Paul talks about the fruit that we bear. Because when we belong to Christ, we begin to look like Christ. Now, listen. Before... You, you begin to think that this is just some kind of weird, liberal, sort of woke thing. Watch this. A.W. Tozer. It is my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by, he puts in scare quotes, accepting Christ, and that they've not been saved. If your Christian conversion did not reverse the direction of your life, it did not, if it did not transform it, then you are not converted at all. You are simply a victim of the accept Jesus heresy. Too many people Claim to be evangelicals who have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, what you do matters. There's an expectation that Christians live ethically, love justice, and pursue mercy. This isn't some sort of woke religion. This is Old Testament religion. This is New Testament belief. This is historic Christianity. For the last 2,000 years, Christians have led the charge for social reform in societies, for justice, and for mercy as Christians we should live lives that look distinctly different from the culture around us. We should stick out like a sore thumb not because we're mean, not because we're dispirited, not because of it, because we look like Jesus. Tozer's concern, if you were to continue to read these passages, Tozer's concern is that there's this weird idea that somehow or other Jesus could be your Savior and not be Lord of your life. And he says that is a lie. Folks, Jesus gets all of you or he gets none of you. He saves all of you or he saves none of you. And the call to follow Christ is the call to die. Be sh- be careful what you do. Why? Because what you do reflects who you are. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why is there such a divide over this idea that Christians should act like Christ? And, and, and for the record... Why is there a divide over what acting like Christ should look like? Listen to me, folks. (laughs) If this is not the defining characteristic of how we behave, of how we live, and of how we act, then we're acting like something, but it's not Christians. you understand? It's not Jesus. Now, let's come back to those percentages. Why is there such a divide over these issues? In part because there are some who claim to be evangelical who have no shred of Jesus in them. Remember, 40% of those who claim to be evangelical do not attend church. Craig, you're being judgmental. I'm telling you what the percentages are. And folks, for, for, for any of you that would feel like this is wrong or judgmental, I would, I, would, I would challenge you. I really would. I would challenge you to come to me with a defense from God's Word that says that People who belong to Jesus should not be engaged in a local church. To build that theology, not out of how your heart feels, but out of what God's Word teaches. The New Testament has no picture of Christians that exist and live all on their own. There's an expectation in the New Testament that Christians belong to a local church. Not the big C capital church that's sort of the world church universal, but that Christians are involved in local churches. So part of the reason there's a divide is because there's many who claim to be evangelical who have no shred of Jesus. But also there's this idea in our secular culture that you can somehow have all the good things about a Christian society without the hard things, and especially without Jesus. Those things, for instance, we talked about the fruit just a moment ago. Those things that, that we find as characterizing characterizing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Missed that for a minute. Those things describe what a follower of Jesus is. The the idea that somehow or other we can build societies and cultures that cling to these belief systems, that cling to ideas of justice and mercy, but that are not rooted in Christ, is a, a fairy tale. It's a figment of imagination made up of a whole cloth. And we know that because these sorts of societies have never existed in pagan cultures. They never existed in the world except in Judeo Christian cultures. The only reason that we began to see, for instance, the, the unbarbarization that's not really a good word of, of the Roman Empire was what? Where, where did we begin to see the decline of things like? Um, crucifixions and the decline of, of, of the games, tearing people apart with wild animals, it's only when Christianity begins to influence and invade the Roman Empire. It's only that we see the, the unbarbarization of Europe when Christianity begins to invade and to drive out pagan cultures. Remember, it was the Christians who rescued babies left to die on the banks of the rivers in Rome. It was Christians who led the first abolition movements. It was Christians ultimately who led the first labor movements when children were being abused and taken advantage of in mills and things like that. It was Christians doing these things. It was Christians who created hospitals. It was Christians who created schools because it's always been the people of God who saw the needs and responded seeking out justice and mercy. So there are two issues here. Number one is too many people who at least claim to be followers of Jesus and don't live like him, so they're not pursuing justice and mercy. The other side of that coin, though, is a secular culture that wants to cling to all the good things that the church has ever done, that Christians have ever done, while kicking Jesus out. But watch how they kind of come together. Because those who claim to be evangelical but don't actually follow Jesus have no moral conscience. They have no moral authority in their life because they've become so postmodern, everything they do. They're making up their own rules. So they're not involved in a church. And when I don't have to go to church, I don't have to read God's word. That doesn't define who I am. And then it comes to don't tell me that God is not a Christian because I want to be one. So I, I've, I've created my own idea. So I'm an, I'm an evangelical, though I don't cling to anything that remotely resembles historic Christianity. So I go this way. running far away from the things of the Lord but still claiming the title but watch it's also those folks on the left here a liberal culture that says I want the things of the church without the church telling me what to do guess where they all intersect over here you get the far left and the far right coming together because they're all about what I want my way without you telling me how to get it but I want you to continue to do what you've always done we can't accomplish those things. It's not new. Amos warned the children of Israel be careful what they did. Because they were not living lives that were characterized by justice and mercy. They were not living lives that were characterized. Listen, I, I, I came across one commentator. So in, in one place here, uh, Amos refers to these rich overfed uh, women who are not caring for the poor as cows of Bashan. And then I read one commentator that says, we shouldn't read that as crude or mean language. He just wanted them to understand. I'm like, look here, I've never met a woman that I could call a cow. And she would go, oh, that's okay, I get it. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I'm a cow. A well-fed cow of Bashan. Nah. He's warning these rich wealthy Israelites. You're looking for the day of the Lord. It's going to come get you because why? Because though you claim to belong to Him, you don't live lives that look like Him. You're fattening yourself. You're, 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 you're lining your own pockets at the expense of the poor. You're not obeying God's Word. You're not living according to God's decrees and God's expectations. Be careful what you do because what you do doesn't define who you are no 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 who you are is defined i mean who you are will will however do what it will it will direct what you do you're not defined by what you do but we all know who you are by what you do don't we and third this morning be sure of who you seek look back at chapter 5 verse 5 for thus says the lord to the house of israel seek me and live But do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Do you know there's hope for Israel? There was hope for Israel. This was before the overthrow. God raised up a shepherd and a dresser of sycamore figs, a a working man, a blue-collar fella. And he sent him to the religious center of Israel. And he said, I want you to stand on the steps, figuratively, and declare to these people what I have said to you. But perhaps the most compelling statement is right there in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Seek me and live. There's hope for Israel. But it won't be found, Israel, where you're looking. He says, Israel, you're trying to find it in your ivory-lined houses. You're trying to find it in your summer home or your winter home. He says that. He says, you're trying to find it in all the wealth that you've amassed. You're trying to find it as you exploit the poor. He says, it won't be found there. It won't be found in the idols that you've created for yourself. He said, seek me and live. Seek the Lord. Too many people go looking for hope or justice or healing or wealth or comfort, but the Lord says seek me and live. Do you notice He doesn't say seek out justice and live? Seek out happiness and live? Seek out comfort and live? Why? Because if we seek Him, everything else tends to follow. If only thing we're pursuing is justice or comfort or peace, we will ultimately fail but if we pursue Christ then all those other things will be added. The Lord says, seek me and live. Who are you seeking? Are you pursuing Christ? Like, honestly pursuing Him? Or are you seeking out a version of Christ that fits your mold? You remember that that, uh, statistic, more than 40% of those who claim to be evangelical are not attending a church in any meaningful way. Are you having your vision of Christ and Christianity shaped more by people who are within that 40% than you are? By the 49% of evangelicals who attend church weekly? In other words, are you having your vision of Christ and Christianity, your vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a decent human, shaped more by those people who claim to be evangelical? but have no meaningful relationship with Christ or His church? Or are you running to God's Word and, and, and the teachings of Christ and the church to help you to understand what it looks like to live? See, if you're having it shaped by those other folks, you may be seeking something, but it may very well not be Jesus. Because our hearts are idle factories and we tend to create for ourselves the things that make us comfortable, the things that we want to follow after, the things that we're interested in. Every one of us does it. And, and I keep saying us because I have to look in the mirror when I say that. I've told y'all before, if I'm not careful, in my mind, Jesus is about six foot one, somewhere around 225, good hair, red beard. We all do it. Jesus tends to look like us, to act like us, to have the same hobbies and interests in us. Guess what, folks? Jesus was nothing like me. He was a Middle Eastern man, probably somewhere 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, 130 pounds, soaking wet. Dark hair, dark eyes. This is the Jesus. This is the physical representation of who he is, but he's also not a... He wasn't a warrior. He wasn't a political upriser. Jesus is meek, mild, lived among us, gave his life so that I might live. If your vision of Christianity, of justice, mercy, and righteousness is being shaped more by cable news, social media, and politics, or your unchurched friends than it is by God's word and by God's people, you may not be pursuing Christ. You may very well be pursuing a cheap imitation. Believe it or not, it's a pretty short sermon today. See, today's sermon's a working man's sermon, a, a, a reminder that God can use anybody. And that God can use anybody to give ordinary, plain messages that have extraordinary impact. A reminder that God can use me, even, or you, to speak words of warning and hope and even salvation. So I ask you this morning, do you desire the Lord, though? Do you desire Him? See, it's pretty simple. Do you desire the Lord or your own satisfaction? Years ago, C.S. Lewis, I think, hit the nail on the head. He's not the only person that's ever done this. I think C.S. Lewis hit the nail on the head. See, most people do not deny or avoid Christianity because they have truth claims. This is where, truthfully, this is where a lot of our apologetics fail. A lot of our apologetics fail because we approach apologetics with the idea that if I can give you enough compelling arguments, then you'll finally convert to Christianity. And that's the case sometimes. But generally, it's a morality issue. You see, those people who are most opposed to Christianity, most opposed to Christ, they don't generally have an epistemological argument. It's not a knowledge issue or a truth issue. No, no, it's a realization that if I were to submit to Christ, then I would be asked to do that which I am unwilling to do. That if I were to follow Christ, my sexual ethic would have to change. Or my business practices would have to change. I'd have to change my social circle. So in conclusion this morning, do you desire the Lord or your own satisfaction? The two may be mutually exclusive. It may be... It may be that until the Lord changes your desires that you can't have both what you want and what God wants for you. Now I know that that flies in the face of so much of what we've always said, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, Craig, if God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, then why can't I have what I want and what He wants at the same time? It's because God's wonderful plan is usually better than what our plan is. Do you understand that? Amos has a message of warning, but it's also a message of destruction. And it's also looking toward the future. He says, this is what's coming. But well, we know not only because of Amos, but because of the other prophetic literature in the Bible that Jesus is coming back again one day. We know that his coming is the time of the end. I talked about this on Wednesday night. Amos' picture of the day of the Lord could refer to these end times. It probably, at least in its initial instance, refers more to God's judgment on the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But we know that God's word is replete. It's filled with images of the end times. We see that in in Daniel. For those of you that are still trying to get through Daniel, the very end of Daniel, there's a warning about the end times. Of course, the book of Revelation, Thessalonians, other places, Ezekiel, we we see these, these promises of the day of the Lord. I'm curious. What does your understanding of the end times bring you? Does it bring you fear or faith? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be terrified for His return. Now, if you know the Lord, you should have no fear about it. If you belong to Jesus and your understanding of the end times makes you afraid, you've got a wrong understanding of the end times. John said, "Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord, come quickly, get here! I can't wait." But what of those who have believed the lie? What of those who are unwilling to give their lives to Christ? Not mind you because you're unconvinced about the truthfulness of God's word, but because like those cows of Bashan, because like those Israelites who loved their comfort and loved their convenience. Truthfully, like colonial Americans who love the comfort and the convenience, the wealth that came, as they lived their lives of comfort and luxury on the backs of a slave trade, they knew what they were doing was wrong. See, that's what we find out. we run to those, those writings, we can read Thomas Jefferson. He knew it was wrong. George Washington, they knew it was wrong. But even as they declared freedom, they were unwilling to do anything about it because it was going to cost them too much money. If you give your life to Christ, it's going to cost you something. Amos spoke to a group of people who were unwilling to sacrifice their comfort for the worship of the Lord. But they believed they could mask it, that they could fool him. God, I'm not living for you, but God, I showed up for the feast. God, I offered my sacrifice. God, I threw a big party for the festival. Lord, look, look at me. God says, I despise those. Because I see through it. He says, don't pursue those things. He said, seek me and live. Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. But watch this. If you're asking for the Lord to give you hope, to give you understanding, to give you a new heart, you just might get that too. Be careful what you do because people who belong to Christ act like Christ. Let me challenge you this morning. If you don't act like or look like Jesus, you probably don't belong to Jesus. And then finally this morning, be sure of who you seek seek Christ and live have you found the Lord if not it's not too late I'm going to close with this quick story years ago I was playing church softball before we ever moved here played with a guy named Mike and I'll never forget he gets out he hits he runs he rounds the bases and he gets into the dugout and he's entirely out of breath I mean just panting and he walks over to, his, to, the, to the bench, and he says, let me get a cigarette so I can catch my breath. <laughs> and sure enough, he lit a cigarette. <sighs> and I was like, oh, like you understand that doesn't work. But folks, he had bought the lie. Like, we can all sit here and go, ha-ha, but he bought the lie. He believed that that which was slowly killing him was actually going to make him better. He desired something unhealthy with the belief that it would make him healthier. My greatest fear for the church in America today Is honestly this that the church would turn toward a version or a vision of Christ that is not real that the church of Jesus Christ would fall in love with an idol that allows us to feel safe and secure in Christ while still hanging on to our sin. That we would suck down on a cigarette to help us catch our breath. That we would bow down at an idol with the false belief that it would help us to live. So I come to you this morning and I say, be sure of what you seek. Do you really want what you think you want? If you really want Jesus it will cost you everything but you will gain heaven in return this morning that's our invitation would you come and find Christ today if you're watching at home would you find Christ today would you be willing to worship a God Who would force you to walk away from your most deeply held sin? See, it's hard. Because our sin becomes our identity, doesn't it? We can become identified by our sexual sin. Or by our financial sin. And when we come to Christ, we lose our identity. We lose our friends. We lose our relationships. But Christ is enough to fill up the gaps and the holes in your life. Yes! You lose all of that, but here's what he promises. An abundant life. Here's what you don't understand. You've been sucking on that cigarette for so long you think it gives you life. But Jesus has something better. Will you come to Christ today and find real life? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for loving us, for sending Jesus to save us, Lord God, and for sending your word. I pray, God, that you'd give people here in this room today, perhaps people at home, the courage, the desire, to walk away from their sin and to walk to Christ, to find life, hope, healing, and love and the salvation that only Jesus can give. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us this morning as we sing holy, holy, holy.